A little drama in the 10-year note this week. 1.361%, but we fell quite low. We were down at 1.286%, and don't forget, just last week, we were at 1.48%. So the 10-year bond fell 0.2% in a week and recovered a little bit, again, to be at 1.36%. So the market, I mean, there's so many ways to interpret this, but from my layman's perspective over here, the market seems to be waving a little yellow flag, doesn't it? Meanwhile, it continues to hit new highs. So it's always interesting when you get these disparities like this. Usually the bond market is thought to have a little more credibility in the stock market. So does that mean we are in for a correction in the stock market? A lot of people are talking about that. So let's see what happens. Metals stay even. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Northern Miner podcast, where we take a close look at the 10-year bond every week in order to understand and contextualize our metals that are our bread and butter as an industry. And we have a very exciting show for you today. Hope you're enjoying your summer. We have a show on Manitoba. And they were thought leadership sponsors at the last Global Mining Symposium. And we don't promise them to be on the podcast as part of that. But I listened to the discussion. I thought, you know, this is just a great survey of what's going on in Manitoba from the First Nations perspective from the company perspective, and from the governmental perspective. So it touches on so many of the things we talk about. And so I thought it was actually a very interesting discussion and actually just a boots-on-the-ground view of what's happening in, say, just a typical Canadian province, the province of friendly Manitoba. So that is coming up, a little summer selection for you here. And other than that, yeah, I mean, we see the crypto markets just continue to kind of feel kind of heavy, uh, drift sideways. We see the stock market is doing quite well. Again, a lot of people are starting to sound a bit of a warning, but maybe it's just climbing that proverbial wall of worry. And some interesting developments on the website here, just again, more evidence that this battery supply chain is tightening. We have another report, this time from Roskill, and we have more forecasts on the tech metals, so lots to look forward to. And last but not least, which we're going to open with, we have Canada's first rare earths mine has opened. It has gone live. Vital Metals out of Australia, our Commonwealth cousins there in Australia, have opened the first rare earth elements mine production site in Canada, and it is the Nicalico Mine, and that was owned by Avalon Rare Metals. For all you rare earth investors 10 years ago, you might remember them. So lots to look forward to. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Northern Miner, and you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we're going to start with this rare earth story, which I think is probably the headline of the week here for our Canadian mining sector at the minimum. And this is by Henry Lazenby. Canada's first tech metals mine goes live. Australia's Vital Metals Limited has started rare earth elements production at its Nicalico project in Canada's Northwest Territories. In doing so, the company helped solidify Canada's role globally as the West works feverishly to establish a new technology metal supply chain independent of China's dominance. The critical production milestone makes Vital the first rare earth producer in Canada and the second in North America besides California's Mountain Pass Mine. I remember the Mountain Pass Mine. That was owned by Molly Corp, which went bankrupt. That was the big blue chip rare earth play back in the day. It looks like they have reopened up. And we have a quote from Vital Metals Managing Director Jeff Atkins, who says, quote, mining activities are over 30% complete. 
with waste material removed from the pit to enable the first blast of ore on the 28th of June, and we are now stockpiling ore for the crusher. He continues, we will continue to ramp up crushing and ore sorting with full production rates expected to be achieved in July. Beneficiated material will be stockpiled for transport to our extraction plant in Saskatoon, my home city. So I love what I'm seeing here. I love what I'm seeing. I, I think this is just awesome. And there's Saskatoon. They put that plant together. Before you know it, they have some ore to sort through. So, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm pleasantly surprised. Yes, I actually am surprised. We are getting it together in Canada and we're actually doing it pretty quick. So I hope we can just actually hit the accelerator here because just look at what we can do. This is actually for a, you know, summer news story here. This is a pretty exciting development. We're seeing the pieces of the puzzle are starting to be put together here. And I tell you, if Canada does that and keeps doing it, and it could get like pretty, you know, exciting. It's, it's already starting to get a tiny, we're getting the first hints of excitement here. Continuing on, on June 28th, First Nations mining contractor Nahani Construction dug the first ore from the North Tea Open Pit at Vital's Nicalico Project, which marked the momentous milestone the First Nations are getting in with their own construction company, Nahani Construction. I tell you, I'm just so impressed with what's going on. According to the company, Nicalico, located 100 kilometers southeast of Yellowknife, hosts a world-class resource of 94.7 million tons, grading 1.46% rare earth oxides across the measured, indicated, and inferred. Nicalico's North Tea Zone hosts a high-grade resource of 101,000 tons at 9% rare earth elements, including 2.2% neodymium and praseodymium. And, and here's the government comes in to this story. So in June, Canadian Northern Economic Development Agency, also known as CANNOR, announced that it had extended a 0%, $1.26 million loan to Cheetah to help fund the establishment of ore sorting technology at Nicalico. I'm getting the sense that our government has really gotten the message. And I tell you, this is exciting. Not to be cynical, as I keep saying, you know, we have conference after conference about how China is eating our lunch and how there's nothing we can do about it. Well, it looks like there's something we can do about it. I, I'm just so pleased. You know, everybody's playing their part here. And it's a it's like a well-tuned orchestra. Continuing on, Retech, a Norway-based company that has developed an efficient and environmentally sound REE separation technology, rare earth element separation technology, has entered into a contract to produce 1,000 metric tons of separated rare earth oxides annually over the first five years. So now we have the environmentally sound separation technology, and the separation technology, from my understanding, is where a lot of the pollution occurs. A lot of the dirty rare earths narrative is constructed. So here we have Retech out of Norway with their efficient and environmentally sound RE separation technology. Again, this is a well-tuned orchestra. Now, Enter the Saskatchewan Research Council. The plan is to ship the upgraded material to Vital's rare earth carbonite production plant next to the Saskatchewan Research Council's REE processing facility in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. A June report of the Standing Committee on Natural Resources presented before the House of Commons recently rang the alarm bells on how important it is for Canada to secure a supply of critical materials, particularly in the face of China's dominance. So... There you have it. Everybody playing their part there. I like it's exciting to see, isn't it? I hope we're just getting started on that. I hope this is just the beginning and not an anomaly because, you know, I don't ever think I've read a story like that. It's simple this should always be the story, shouldn't it? But I don't think I've ever read a story like that in my, you know, 10 years, 9, 10 years at the Northern Miner where everybody's just doing what they should do playing their part, and it's just like a well-tuned orchestra. Moving on, competition for controlling lithium-ion battery production intensifies. It's by Valentina Ruiz Leotode, and 
A report by Roskill states that the competition for controlling lithium-ion batteries production has intensified globally with continuous announcements made regarding the build-out of new lithium-ion battery plants and or capacity expansion. A case in point is Nissan's official confirmation in early July that Envision AESC will build a second 9-gigawatt plant in the United Kingdom. According to the market analyst, research shows the geographic distribution of lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing capacity remains Asia-centric and particularly China-focused. In fact, China is expected to account for over 50% of global capacity by 2030. That's 58%. Now, remember my interview with Anthony Malowski. So he was saying that, you know, it's China is hopelessly ahead of us. I hope not. I, you know, I see what we just did with some rare earths there. Again, if that's just, I hope that's just the opening shot. Uh, in parallel, Roskill data shows that Chinese lithium-ion battery producers have been striving to expand their international client base in addition to meeting domestic demands. Europe, on the other hand, is aggressively building its own lithium-ion battery industry with government incentives and tougher emission regulations playing an important role in the electric vehicle sector's rapid expansion. And the report says, quote, Roskill forecasts Europe's share of global lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing capacity will increase from less than 6% in 2020 to 26% by 2030. So not bad at all for Europe. In Roskill's view, North America is likely to join the race to build out lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing capacity, but catching up would require effective collaboration between industry, investors, and regulators. Well, I think that's possible. Like, I mean, I don't think we should accept this as not possible anymore. I think we've all run out of patience on this. Like, get it together, industry, investors, and regulators, and get it done. So anyways, not to digress there. So that is another issue. So hopefully they can get that going. And you know what? Like, if we start getting the lithium-ion supply chain going, you know what I think we're going to start having is momentum. We're going to start having momentum. So any policymakers, like, just get on it. Get on it. Get on the phone with people. This is exciting. On a humdrum summer day, beautiful day here in Berlin, we have some excitement. Moving on, another story by Henry Lazenby. Forecasts morph into reality as tech metal fundamentals heat up. And here we have a report from Adamus Intelligence. And so here the article says the world is at the start of an exponential upswing in demand for the suite of technology metals as a global top-down push for the energy revolution accelerates. Ryan Castillo, managing director of Atomas Intelligence, tells the Northern Miner. He says that despite the figures coming off a lower base in 2020 due to the coronavirus pandemic, China and the European Union saw exponential demand growth for critical minerals in the first five months of the year, despite the rolling shutdowns last year. And we have a quote from Castillo. Coming into 2021, with the change of administration in the U.S., we now see the U.S. recommitting itself to the Paris Climate Agreement and laying out its aggressive targets for electrification of vehicles in the decade or two ahead. That adds even further strength to the narrative coming out of last year and gives us confidence that we're now really at the beginning of a strong, steady growth for both the bouquet of battery metals and materials, but also other rare metals. And you know what kind of freaks me out a little bit is how central the car is to our economies. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Like the car is just core. And I'm sure there's a lot of reasons like that we could go into, but I mean, that's another sort of takeaway from all these stories is how vehicles, how incredibly important they are to the economy. And you wonder, like, 200 years from now, what they'll think of that. Maybe they'll all have their flying cars and, you know, think that that's just how it is. And maybe it'll still be that way. Who knows? According to him, Castillo, the move from prior projections about future demand growth has been so strong, it's in fact overshooting those forecasts. Quote, we're seeing a lot of yesterday's projections coming to fruition. And in most or all cases, I would say, likely exceeding the projections given the top-down push that we see in key markets like China, Europe, and the U.S., where governments have gotten behind electrification. 
They are pushing it forward rather than simply allowing the market to grow organically, which was probably more of an accurate reality five years ago or so. Western politicians, North American politicians, have gotten the memo. I like I I'm shocked to say, but that is what I see here. And you know, maybe it just gives them something to to think about beyond the culture wars. Like maybe this just gives a kind of a straightforward issue that doesn't have to do with the culture wars. And it's really fun when you see politicians dealing with things of substance here, uh, like our metal supply chains. So read the whole report. He goes in depth with this interview with Ryan Castillo, and it's really interesting, and we're just scratching the surface here. A couple other stories. Sentara brings additional claims in the Kyrgyz Kumtor arbitration. This is also by Henry Lazenby. Canadian miner Sentara Gold has brought additional claims in its binding arbitration against the Kyrgyz Republic government as it fights the, quote, wrongful expropriation, end quote, of its cornerstone Kumtor mine. Sentara has also named state monopoly gold refiner and Sentara's largest shareholder, Kyrgyzalatin, as a respondent. According to the amended notice of arbitration, Kyrgyzalatin conspired with the Kyrgyz government to take control of the mine under the guise of temporary, quote, external management. It appears to continue acting at the government's behest concerning the Kumtor operation and its shareholding in Sentara, the company alleges. So basically nothing changed over there. Sentara is still trying to fight to get its mine back. It will be very interesting to see how that unfolds. McEwen Mining has spun out their Los Azulis copper project in Argentina, and it will become McEwen Copper. And we just a quick quote from... Rob McEwen, quote, with copper running up above $4 per pound, Los Azules starts to take on a new life. It is very sensitive to the price of copper. And he also says, so we said, okay, copper is hot and we're not getting value in McEwen mining for the project. I think it was largely because the operation of our gold mines were not performing very well for the last two years. And that overshadowed our exploration success on our other properties and the value of Los Azules. So look out for McEwen copper. And finally, uh, we have a new report that says a copper supply gap will emerge in the second half of the decade. And this is by Northern Miners staff. And we have a report from Capital Light Research that says trend copper prices must remain well above long-term incentive levels to justify new mine development or at around $3.50 per pound. I mean, this is Jeffrey Christian's point. It's a common point that if you want new supply, you need high prices as they say, the cure for high prices is high prices. The report notes that world demand for copper will grow by 3.8% in 2022 to about 25 million tons. And while supply of the red metal over the next few years will be bolstered by new copper mines coming on stream, such as Ivanhoe's Kamoa Kakula in the DRC and Mina Justa in Peru and Timok in Serbia, along with new projects under construction, such as Tech Resources Cabrada Blanca Phase 2, it expects that, quote, the current mine expansion wave will peak in 2024 and a large projected gap in required mine supply will open up in the second half of the decade. The report also says that unlike recent years, prices will be driven less by short-term macroeconomic developments in China and more by rising demand linked to global decarbonization. So things are getting real over in the copper market and so those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices and see how they're doing this week. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on July 13th, the 10-year bond is at 1.346%. That is down from 1.425 last week and 1.48 the week before. Gold is up $2 at $1,807.49 per ounce. Silver is down 56 cents at $26.07 per ounce. Platinum is trading at $1,118.26 per ounce. That is $5 higher than last week. And palladium is unchanged at $2,844.24. It is 55 cents lower, but I think we can call that unchanged. 
Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.28 per pound, that is six cents higher. Aluminum is two cents lower at $1.12 per pound. Lead is two cents higher at $1.06 per pound. And nickel is 24 cents higher at $8.47 per pound. Tin is at $15, which is six cents higher than last week. And cobalt is at $22.89, that is two cents lower than last week. And zinc is at $1.34 per pound, that is two cents higher. Pretty humdrum, these prices. Really nothing to write home about anywhere. I mean, we're treading water here, is what we're doing. It'd be interesting to see the volume, because you sort of get the impression from this that everybody's on summer vacation. Nickel, a little bit higher. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the Thought Leadership Panel featuring the Government of Manitoba at the Global Mining Symposium. And this was sponsored by the Government of Manitoba. But really what you get here is a very interesting, clear view of the mining industry in the province. And there is dissent, so don't think because it's sponsored that it is not plain spoken. And it is. So that features the Honorable Blaine Peterson, Minister of Agriculture and Resource Development for the Government of Manitoba, and Scott Parsons, who is Vice President of Exploration at Alamos Gold, Don McCallum, who is Counselor from the Treaty 5 Territories, and Felix Lee, who is President and CEO of Willison Metals Corporation and immediate past President of the PDAC. The conversation is moderated by Shastri Ramnath, who is President, Director, and CEO of Exiro Minerals Corporation. It's a very interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Thank you very much, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the introduction. I am just going to switch right on over to Minister Peterson. Welcome, and thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, good afternoon, Shastri, and, and I bring greetings from Premier Brian Pallister, of Premier of Manitoba, and my Department of Agriculture and Resource Development. And thank you to the Northern Miner for setting up this forum, and welcome to all your guests. Thank you. So let's get down to business. So Manitoba has an exceptional mineral profile, including hot commodities such as the base metals, nickel, copper, zinc, and precious metals such as gold. And of course, there's strategic metals in the province, lithium, cesium, cobalt, etc. The province has also been known to be underexplored for diamonds and graphite. We also know that the Precambrian Shield is well endowed with world-class deposits that have been mined for decades. However, as we both talk about often, uh, there's large areas that remain underexplored. And these are areas that have a huge amount of potential for tier one discoveries. So we know that Manitoba has rated in the top 20 of the Fraser Institute's most attractive jurisdictions for about 21 of the last 23 years. And recently we know that it's dropped a bit, but rather than ask you why it's dropped, I think it's more important to talk about what you are doing to make Manitoba once again, one of the most attractive places on the planet to explore. Yeah, thanks Shastri. And you know, as we see the resurgence in investment in mining, Manitoba has so much to offer. You mentioned our uh, exceptional mineral profile. I don't need to go through that again, but we have clean, green, renewable electricity. We have our Manitoba Mineral Development Fund. We put $20 million into a fund to jumpstart mineral development initiatives. We are strategically located in North America with road, rail, and port connections. We reduced our provincial sales tax from 8% to 7%. We've reduced other taxes, all while dealing with the pandemic, as everyone is quite well aware of, and the associated costs with that pandemic. We structured our department, and I'll, I'll just speak to this a little bit more uh, later. You know, every government says they're open for business, but we want to show that we're open for business and look to earn your investments. 
Okay, well, all of the points you've mentioned are good reasons why companies are exploring in the province already. And I just want to point out, you know, we've already talked about uh, Oryx Geoscience, the company that I co-own and operate out of Winnipeg. We also know that there are companies that are established and working in the province, and those include big companies like Hud Bay, Valet, Alamos. We have uh, Scott Parsons here. We're going to talk to you in a few minutes. Yamana. And there's several juniors who are active in the, the province, including 1911 Gold, Voyager, Mineral Explorers, Rockcliffe, Can Alaska, uh, BWR, and one of the newer companies is Willison Metals, who will also be speaking today. You have formed the MLCME, which is the Minister's Liaison Committee in Mining and Exploration, um, of which I'm the chair, and uh, we have been putting recommendations forward to you and uh, speaking regularly with you and your team. So the first ones were around permitting um, and incentives that we put forward, and, uh, the, and some of the incentives that we've suggested are uh, forming a fund such as Sidex in, in Quebec, as well as forming programs like G like they have in Ontario uh, for Jeep. Can you give us an update on the progress of some of the changes you are making that have been recommended to you and your government? Sure, Shastri. In 2020 at the PDAC convention in Toronto, back when we could meet in person, I made the commitment to fix the permitting system. And so I'm very happy to say that we now have a single window permitting service within the department. We also have our First Nations Mineral Development Protocol, and I just want to uh, applaud and encourage companies who are working to develop early working relationships with our First Nations community. Ultimately, the responsibility will be of our Mountain government to do the Section 35 consultations, but those early relationships are so important. Our government has also adopted a concierge service so that uh, companies will allow them to connect with the right services within the government. There's more than just the permitting, there's infrastructure issues and we can connect you with those uh, needed departments uh, in order to make your development go forward. Okay, so thank you. I, you know, I do know that Manitoba's had a tough run with COVID and I know that it, you're right in the middle of it right now. And the number one thing obviously we need to do is keep people safe. We also know that mining has in the past significantly contributed to the Manitoba economy and uh, that exploration mining are a clear opportunity, you know, in the near future to actually help rebuild the economy as we emerge out of COVID. No, well, we absolutely see the, uh, the opportunity, Shastri. And yes, it's, a, we, you know, just like every other jurisdiction, we've had our uh, go with COVID here too. But we, we've continued to look at down the road past COVID and how we will rebound from this and and we'll continue to work with the industry and Manitoba's mining liaison committee to advance our mining industry. We invite companies to come and have a look at what Manitoba has to offer. We're also looking forward to the Central Canada Mining Exploration Convention this November to continue this important conversation, whether it's in person or whether it's virtual. As the Northern Miner has, has proven, we can do these virtually. We'd much rather have you here in person. Manitoba's goal is to be the top attractive mining jurisdiction on the planet. And that's what we're going to be. And we're going to make it happen. Ah, uh, great. Well, you know, thank you for bringing up the convention. I know that there's some question as to whether or not they're going to run it this year. But I do encourage anyone who's listening to keep on top of it. And if they can ever uh, come to Manitoba for the conference, I know in 2022 that they are going to have a well, hoping to have an in-person one, uh, providing everything goes really well. And I think that coming to Manitoba and coming to Winnipeg, you can really, people will really see what Manitoba has to offer. And uh, I always like the license plate says friendly Manitoba. So we should maybe change it to friendly mining Manitoba. Um, so we'll, we'll, work on, <laughs> we'll work on that one, Shastri, but friendly Manitoba just is our moniker and we will, uh, we go by that. And just thanks for the opportunity to join you today. I, I watched the previous couple of presentations that really exciting stuff happening in the mining industry. I wish you and your company and, and the organizers a wonderful event. It's there is mining is the place to be right now. And uh, we're we welcome you to Manitoba to come and make it happen. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you later. And we will work with you to make Manitoba one of the top jurisdictions on the planet for mining investment. So thank you. You're welcome. Oh. Okay, so let's continue on. Let's now move on to the panel. So I'd like to start by thanking our three guests who've taken the time to attend. For the purposes of today's discussion, the panelists are all involved with exploration programs in the Lynn Lake Belt. So I'll start by introducing them and then we'll jump into the questions. 
So we have Scott Parsons, VP of Exploration for Alamos, who's been running regional beltwide exploration programs in the Loon Lake Belt for the last three and a half years. He is also a member of the Minister's Liaison Committee in Manitoba and has been working with me on that front for two years. We also have Don McCallum, Councillor, and Douglas Hart, former Chief of Marcel Colomb First Nations, and I would like to acknowledge that they are, calling, they are from Treaty 5 territory. They both work closely with Alamos and are calling in from the band office located in Lynn Lake, Northern Manitoba. So hopefully we'll have some good reception with them. I know last year has been challenging for the Northern communities and we appreciate that they're able to join us today. Finally, we have the newest entrance to the belt, uh, Felix Lee, CEO of Wilson Metals Corp, who uh, most recently just finished his tenure as the president of PDAC. And of course, this is a role that most people wouldn't envy considering his two PDA, the last two PDACs took place during a global pandemic. So Wilson is a younger company with exploration projects in and around the, the uh, Lynn Lake belt. So Scott, Alamos has been operating in Manitoba for about the last six years. What has Alamos's experience been operating in Northern Manitoba? Well, first of all, thanks. Uh, it's great to be here on the, on the panel discussion, and thanks to the Northern Miner for organizing the symposium. Just as some background, yeah, Alamos has been active in Manitoba for, for almost six years. We acquired the, uh, the Lynn Lake Gold Project in 2015 from uh, Carlisle Goldfields. Um, since then, from a project development standpoint, we've issued a feasibility study in 2017. In the second quarter of 2020, we filed an environmental impact statement for the project. So if the project's built, it'll produce an average of 143,000 ounces of gold over a 10-year mine life. The project will also have a significant positive impact in Manitoba, specifically in the northern region, where we're estimating 400 full-time jobs and contributing over a billion dollars to Manitoba's GDP over the life of the project. From an exploration perspective, there's significant potential to grow the reserve and resource base at Lynn Lake. We demonstrated this recently by adding 500,000 ounces of mineral reserves, so going from 1.6 million ounces in our feasibility study to 2.1 million ounces at year-end 2020. There's also significant potential for new discoveries across the Lynn Lake Greenstone Belt. Our teams are currently ramping up right now for our 2021 summer field program, and we're going to get started here in the next week or two on advancing a number of those greenfields targets across the belt. So I guess to your question about experience in operating in, in Manitoba over the past uh, six years, well, for me as a geologist, what I like most about Manitoba is the exploration potential. And you could have guessed I would say that as a geologist. And it's underexplored compared to other jurisdictions. In my mind, one of the most critical components for favorable jurisdiction when I'm looking to invest money in exploration is mineral discovery. It is the geology and really the prospectivity of the, of the mineral systems in which you're exploring. Right, right off the top, I and mean, we can look at uh, Manitoba and, and start with the Thompson Nickel Belt is world class in terms of nickel deposits. Base metal deposits, Flin Flon, Lynn Lake, Leaf Rapids, they're all in the Trans-Hudson origin. Over to gold, gold deposits occur in, in multiple terrains, both Archean and Paleoproterozoic. Rice Lake and Oxford Stull in the Superior Province, Flin Flon, Snow Lake, and Lynn Lake in the Trans-Hudson origin. So, so based on this, and, and specifically these, these really well-endowed mineral systems in the province, I can say with a really high level of confidence as a geologist, there's other significant mineral deposits to be discovered in Manitoba, and uh, hopefully at our Lynn Lake project as well. And one of the challenges, if you look at uh, exploring in the Canadian Shield, and it's no different whether you're in Northern Ontario or Northern Manitoba or in Lynn Lake, is that we are exploring in areas that have extensive surficial covers. These are glacial deposits that were deposited and essentially blanketing underlying uh, bedrock. So they're, they're complex in terms of you know, where they formed and where they came from. So I guess needless to say, you, know, you have perspective geology. It doesn't always equal an easy discovery, but what it does equal is an opportunity. You can use these surficial materials. If you use them correctly as a tool, instead of a hindrance, you're gonna have discoveries. And combining that, that's you know, glacial materials as, as a tool for exploration, with your traditional boots on the ground, geologic mapping, bedrock prospecting, geochemistry, you know, add in new innovative geophysical techniques like the Halifax and gravity gradiometer survey, high resolution drone magnetics. And you take that, and in our case, we're applying it within a constantly evolving greenstone belt scale mineral systems framework. It's an unbelievable opportunity for discovery, and we're excited to, excited to make some discoveries. So I'm just going to step away, I guess, and shift gears from uh, geology to, uh, to infrastructure. And one of the key points in Manitoba is energy and road infrastructure. So it's a competitive advantage for the province, and it can be leveraged further as we move forward. Manitoba is one of the lowest cost jurisdictions in Canada for, for clean energy. Um, it's an extremely attractive proposition when you're looking at developing a mining uh, project. But Manitoba can leverage this advantage over other jurisdictions to attract investment, that's obvious. You know, ongoing investments by the province in both electrical and road infrastructure will ensure that this clean and affordable electricity 
but also the people and equipment can get to the mining projects to power and operate the projects. It's also critical for the long-term success of the mining sector in Manitoba, particularly you know, exploration starting to expand to more remote reaches of the province, getting away from the existing road and the power infrastructure. We know, I think Shasta, we've talked about it before, you know, we put a road in, it's going to lead to increased exploration, which will ultimately lead to more discoveries given how the geologic potential of the province. And the last point I'll touch on in my experience in Manitoba um, is on the uh, Minister's Liaison Committee for Mining and Exploration, which you referred to in the introduction. So a volunteer committee member uh, on that committee. This was established by Minister Peterson, who, who just spoke, uh, for industry to work with government with the ultimate objective of trying to attract increased investment to Manitoba into the mining, exploration, and mineral processing sector. So firstly, I applaud Minister Peterson for having the vision and that leadership to create the committee with the mandate for the committee to focus on providing the government with recommendations to make Manitoba the premier jurisdiction, as Minister Peterson said, in the planet for mining and exploration. Several recommendations to date, uh, permitting and incentives, we'll have many more recommendations on the way. Well, thank you. And I think, you know, you and I've experienced that the uh, the government's engagement in the committee has been really good. And it takes, it does take time to roll out our recommendations and it does take time for the government to digest and absorb. And, and it's been really hard with COVID. So, uh, but we do, we, like, I think we both share the sentiment that the, the, the minister and his, his, and the government have been listening. Okay. So we're going to shift gears a little bit to Dawn. Just to start with, your community has been working closely with Alamos for the past few years, and we know that in today's world, engaging with communities early and often is key to maintaining a good relationship. So just a question for you as a topic right now that's of interest to like all of the industry, what does pre-engagement mean to your community? Uh, first of all, I'd like to say, I'd like to say uh, thank you for having me here. And uh, well, in regarding to, in regards to pre-engagement, uh, what it does, I think it would help to achieve uh, goals, working towards uh, planning and implementation of these goals uh, with the mining industry as well as government. Our First Nation and the industries, mining industries uh, in the mining sector can, can interact to share, we can share information and create partnerships. That's the main thing that, uh, that, that pre-engagement would part of the discussion. We would like to, like, you know, be informed so that we can develop plans that benefit our First Nation. You know, not just for uh, someone, not just for a company to come in and then go. Uh, so those are things that uh, we could discuss and, you know. And also with uh, pre-engagement, uh, you gotta, you got to understand what land claims are, the TLE agreement. Eh? We can just have discussions on that as well. And uh, we look at the environmental damage that was done in the past. That's something we want to discuss for the future, so that doesn't happen again. For example, you know, like for example, with the uh, shared gold gold mine or the Fox Lake mine, there, there was extensive damage to the environment with those two mines, and that's not the only one. And you know, commitments. We like you know, commitments to support our First Nation from mining companies. You know, so we can all, that all this stuff can be discussed. And I think that's why I find pre-engagement to be very important. Well, and I think in the industry, and, and I think it's important that people understand that, you know, in the industry, relationships are really important. We go to PDAC, we go to these conferences so that we can build relationships and friendships and business partnerships and so on and so forth. And it's not any different from talking with you and other Indigenous communities. It's not any different for the, the communities, the Northern communities. So I guess my question for you is, if you can articulate for the industry why relationships are specifically important to the communities from and why relationships are important from your perspective? Well, we have our traditional territories. We have our cultural areas. Uh, and we, uh, we, like, we've been nomadic for quite some time, and we use a lot of these uh, land, uh, land areas, land use, eh? And uh, the companies and the industries uh, would have to understand that, and uh, especially where they're going to be exploring, for example. They have to do, they have to prevent minimal damage, with, you know, so that's the, something that we have to discuss. And uh, one important aspect of uh, engagement is to develop a resource, uh, I would think, is a resource management system so that the environment and our traditional and cultural areas are kept in pristine conditions. It's like a monitoring thing to help build and support our, our endeavors that would benefit our, the First Nation training, employment, to understand what could be planned and what can be achieved, putting that all into perspective, and to make connections between our First Nation, uh, the mining industries, governments, 
to deliver, uh, you know, an increased efficiencies through more, uh, something that's more tailored and better coordinated policies and services for our community, as well as the uh, industry. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like uh, share with the First Nation that the, uh, the benefits that would, come along, that would come with this. Yeah. Well, we're going to, one of the next questions I'm going to ask you is about business, but I'm just going to switch gears quickly over to Felix. Okay, so you've had an interesting few years um, working with the PDAC as the president, and you've been exposed to the global mining industry your, your whole career, and you are in the know regarding like the mining friendliness of jurisdictions around the world and across Canada. So I guess the question for you is you're now the CEO of Willison Metals Corp, a company focused on doing business in Manitoba, and you clearly like Manitoba as a jurisdiction. So the big question is why? Well, thank you, Shashri, and uh, the Northern Miner as well for, uh, for giving me the chance to be a part of this panel. It's uh, fantastic to be here. Um, and Shashri, yes, to answer your question, I am really, really very excited about Wilson being in Manitoba. Uh, I have, uh, as I said, uh, been exposed to a number of mining jurisdictions over the course of my career. I spent 35 years pretty much exploring around the world, uh, including Canada. It's great to be back, uh, back home, if you will, uh, uh, exploring in my home country. Um, and what is it about Manitoba? Well, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's as uh, Anthony Vaccaro said it right at the start, it's one of the great mining regions in the world. Manitoba has great geology and it has enjoyed a very long and distinguished history of exploration. And probably known as a, uh, a base metal province uh, to most people, uh, but you know, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, there's gold in Manitoba and lots of it. And, you know, as for Willison, I'm extremely excited about, uh, you know, what we have in front of us. Willison is four large, very large gold properties in the Lend Lake area of Manitoba, uh, covering some 240 square kilometers across, you know, some of the key structures that define the Lend Lake Greenstone Belt. And that in itself uh, astonishes me. Um, to be able to assemble such a large land position is very difficult to do and certainly very hard, if not impossible to do in say Northern Ontario uh, or Northern Quebec. Uh, and I think that in itself speaks to how the province really has kind of been overlooked in a way uh, and gives you some sense of the magnitude of opportunities that exist uh, in the province. And let me be clear, you know, Willison is focused on gold. I'm focused on gold, but the opportunities extend well beyond just gold. I'm going to put on my PDC hat here for a second and just basically say that it's a really exciting time for the industry. Uh, we are poised to play a very, very critical, a very key role uh, in the electrification of the economy and making that transition to a low carbon future happen. Uh, and in the case of Manitoba, if you think about it, I believe the province produces something of about 18 close to 18 of the 31 minerals and metals that are listed on Canada's newly defined critical minerals list. Uh, that was released at the PDC convention just a couple of months ago. And if you think about the fact that Manitoba produces so many of these minerals and metals, you have to recognize that there's a huge opportunity in this province for both industry uh, and for the province of Manitoba and for the Manitoban people. And on top of all of that, I guess, uh, you know, what else excites me about the province of Manitoba is uh, all of the very good and very constructive uh, advocacy that's going on. And as a result of that, we see a very, very supportive provincial government. And I think the fact that, uh, you know, we're here at a Manitoba government organized panel discussion, uh, we've just heard from the minister himself. I think that speaks to the level of support that the provincial government uh, is giving uh, our industry. And it's, it's critical. It's critical that Manitoba puts its best foot forward. It's critical that Manitoba recognizes, and I believe the government really truly is recognizing the fact that, you know, Manitoba not only competes with uh, other provinces and territories uh, to be the prime destination for expiration and, and the place to spend expiration dollars, uh, but Manitoba is also competing with pretty much the rest of the world. Uh, when it comes to that. So uh, getting the support of the government is, is fantastic. The opportunities are all here. They're tremendous opportunities. And so really, Shashri, to answer your question, it's just a really exciting time to be in Manitoba. And Willison is happy to be, uh, be here. So we're going to go, we're going to have one more quick question for each of the panelists. So, okay, Scott, 
Back to you. It sounds like Alamos uh, shares Willison's philosophy on discovery potential in Manitoba and, of course, in the Lynn Lake Belt. You have also uh, partnered with Marcel Colomb First Nation, and you've launched a land-based youth development project uh, with the support of the Manitoba Mineral Development Fund, which is a $20 million fund uh, supporting uh, the North. What can you tell us about the project? Well, Shastri, that's right. In 2020, uh, Alamos and, and Marcel Colomb First Nation um, launched the youth development project you're referring to, which uh, I will note is funded in part by the Manitoba Mineral Development Fund. Uh, which I'll touch on in a second. You're already going to give a, an overview of the, the fund. Um, so this program is a great partnership to provide a foundation for future training opportunities. So these opportunities could lead to potential employment at the proposal in Lake project, which I referred to earlier. We look forward to continuing to develop uh, the, these training opportunities with uh, Marcel Colomb as we move forward. Just to touch on the Mineral Development Fund, uh, it's delivered and administered by the Manitoba Chamber of Commerce. It has a $20 million budget provide opportunities for Indigenous partnerships, increase local employment and economic development opportunities. Just as I mentioned, you know, if the Lindley Gold Project is built, it will result in over 400 jobs over the construction and operating phases of the project. And we do intend to hire locally and regionally first. Just highlights how important it is to continue to expand those training opportunities and develop the local talent. So, and I also like recognize the, the efforts that are underway by both Manitoba and the Canadian governments to make skills and training a priority. This includes the Canada-Manitoba Job Grant, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this is going to support northern Manitoba communities. I was really pleased last week to see the announcement by the government on investments in providing high-speed internet to, to rural and parts of northern Manitoba. This is critical for communities for economic development, but it's also really, really key for remote training initiatives. So all communities should have access to high-speed internet, I, I, and I know this is going to go a long way to, to doing that. I can encourage the government to continue to evaluate options with you know, various partnerships to work towards ensuring that all communities in the province have access to the best quality of connectivity possible. And you know, from our perspective, this will really support our ability to, uh, to uh, continue developing our training programs. That will definitely be a game changer if it's easier to communicate through the internet, for sure. Um, okay, Don, I believe you're still there. If you- Yes, I, I am. Excellent. Okay, so back to your original points. Now, we know that you've had the land-based youth development project in partnership with Alamos. What kinds of other things would you like to see from industry that would better uh, the Northern First Nations communities? Well, uh, with the industries, it would definitely provide employment as well as training that would benefit our First Nation people. But that set aside, too, like, for example, the land-based youth project that we've been doing here, like we've been developing cabins here and there within our traditional territories, and we, we let the youth and the uh, elders use the use those cabins for uh, medicine gathering, etc. Those are the type of projects that we that almost and uh, the First Nation that work with. But there's also uh, like opportunities, like uh, for example, companies that do come in, like. For drilling, like exploration companies, we would uh, like employment for our people within those areas because generally, right now, as it is, there's none of our, not very many people within our First Nation are employed with the drilling companies. It would be also nice if we could even get a drill and do our own drilling thing. That's one of the things we'd like to get, as an example. Also, a lot, there'd be a lot of economic benefits for us. One of them would be for companies, for example, with Alamos to uh, get a uh, uh, to purchase uh, some heavy equipment so that we could be part of the uh, workforce in the Alamo's gold mine, as well as ecotourism. That's another aspect that we would like to go into. And this, because we want these things to be permanent. We have, because the, the the company, like for example, will come and go, eh? Like there's only a lifespan of so many years. And uh, we'd like to do something else after that if there's going to be no mining industry available within this area. So yeah, like we'd like to delve into some economic opportunities if there are any, the, the ones they do come out, because uh, that's part of the planning that we have to do with the Alamos in our uh, engagement or not, not only Alamos, but Wilson Meadows, for example, you know, have these discussions so we can plan, plan on that for our, the future of our First Nation. What happened in the past is people, the companies would come and go, and we'd never benefit from anything. Like, it was always just come and then they'd go. And there was nothing for us after that, uh, you know, so it's, it's, we, we do want something that will be permanent, that we can use. Yeah, That's something we can discuss with uh, companies that do come in with us and partner with us. Yeah. I think, uh, like, we're, we're willing. 
we have the companies come in because we see it as a benefit for our First Nation. And that's what, so we will not hesitate. We'll get them to come in and then work with them. Yeah, and I think, you know, probably a good way to look at it is that mining can be a, a first industry to come into an area, but then, you know, building and sustainable businesses within your communities will allow you to open up to other industries like tourism in northern Manitoba. So, okay, well, thank you for that. We're going to move on to the very last, Felix, to you. What would you like to see happen in Manitoba to support Williston uh, in the next two years? Well, Shashri, that's that's just that's very very simple. Uh, I would love to see the government continuing to do what it's already doing, uh, streamlining, making much more efficient uh, your existing regulatory environment. Uh, I would also love to see continued uh, strong advocacy uh, in the province. Uh, as I mentioned before, that advocacy work is critical to building relationships. It's critical. Uh, to educating all stakeholders about the importance of mining and mineral exploration in the province. Uh, and it's critical to making sure or ensuring that Manitoba is able to put its best foot forward uh, and able to compete with all jurisdictions around the world as a place to explore, a place to mine, and a place to spend exploration and development dollars. Uh, so that's pretty much it. Simple. Thank you. there you have it, Manitoba making a bid to be the world's top mining jurisdiction in the world. You know, I'd say they have a fighting chance to do it. Well, I found what Don McCallum had to say actually is pretty interesting as well, particularly the quote, we would like to be informed. And the whole idea of pre-engagement, you could almost make a show on that alone. And maybe we will. Thank you once again for joining us. Hope you're having a wonderful summer once again. Until next week, take care.